Hello, this is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the editor of the JNIS. I'd like to welcome you today to the next in the series of JNIS podcasts. I'm thrilled to welcome Kyle Fargen from the Department of Neurosurgery at Wake Forest University, who will be discussing his manuscript, Major Complications of Dural Venous Sinus Stenting for Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension, Case Series and Management Considerations. Before we get started, just a message from our sponsors. This podcast is supported by Rapid Medical. Rapid Medical develops responsive neurovascular devices for improved control of procedural success. Recently, the pivotal TIGER trial showed superior good clinical outcomes and reperfusion for the TIGER Retriever thrombectomy device compared to previous landmark trials. Tiger Retriever gives interventionalists greater control over clot removal, allowing them to see the device and tailor the radial force during retrieval. With this real-time responsiveness, the pivotal trial demonstrated the lowest rate of distal emboli and 24-minute median procedure time. Email info at rapid-medical.com or contact your local Rapid Medical representative to learn more about this new class of adjustable thrombectomy devices. Kyle, welcome, and thanks again for all the work that you do on behalf of the journal. Thank you for the opportunity. So this manuscript, as I mentioned, is currently on the JNIS website and will be published in the uh, print edition of the January JNIS. Kyle, I think this is uh, really a an important topic right now, as we all know, uh, this procedure, specifically venous sinus stenting, is being performed really internationally in the treatment of uh, venous sinus stenosis and IIH. I wanted to give you a little time at the outset to um, summarize what your methods were in terms of accruing the the patients that you analyzed in this study. And if you could briefly summarize some of the major complications uh, at the outset, and then we'll get into a little bit more of a deeper dive into some of those individual complications. Sure. This manuscript um, was a multi-center collaboration between some of the authors who are, uh, have high volume IH practices and perform a lot of venous sinus stenting. And we collected major complications that occurred uh, among those separate authors at these various institutions to try to better understand how often major complications occur and then to try to provide useful information to readers that may not perform this procedure as frequently to better prevent or manage them once they've occurred. And so we had our authors review their diagnostic venogram procedures and their venous sinus stenting cases for uh, major complications, which we really defined as stroke, bleeding, thrombosis, or or other um, major injuries. And we compiled that. It ended up being about um, roughly uh, 800 venous sinus stenting procedures and uh, 1,400 diagnostic venogram cases. And uh, we compiled um, six major complications that we then went into detail about. These included an acute subdural hematoma, intraprocedural stent thrombosis, delayed stent thrombosis, 
a cerebellar hemorrhage, which ended up being fatal. And then two procedures where there was inadvertent venous puncture or perforation with extravasation. And uh, those are summarized in detail. And then at the end, we provide learning points for the readers based upon sort of the consensus agreement among the authors of what makes sense as far as good practice in regards to um, these procedures. Yeah, you mentioned in your introduction that there really are some gaps in the literature in terms of how we do these procedures in terms of the technical nuances and certainly uh, complication uh, management. Can you delve into a little bit uh, deeper what some of these major gaps are? I've alluded to a few, but how do we overcome them? Uh, I assume it's through manuscripts like the one you just uh, published. Well, we we hope so, right? Uh, We had previously, I was one of the authors on, on a a review paper where we looked at the data to try to provide recommendations for selection and management of patients with IEH in terms of venous sinus stenting. And the data was just really poor. The best example I think of that is the fact that the gradient we use for selecting candidacy for stenting is fairly arbitrary in how um, it it was um, developed and it just sort of became a a standard to use a gradient of eight or more, sometimes 10 or more but there's not really any good science behind why we would choose that specific gradient. And most of what we do is it's a little bit experimental from a standpoint that what stents we should be using, what size stents we should be using, what sort of length should we stent the entire transverse sinus? Should we just stent the the focal stenosis? What should we be treating patients for papilledema and visual deterioration, or should we be treating patients for headache as well if there's no visual compromise? As far as um, who and how we should be treating patients, the the data is quite limited. And so with this paper, we felt that there's a lot of people doing these cases, and it's not a routine procedure, you know, accessing the venous sinuses. It's, it's, It's quite a bit different from what we usually do on the arterial side. And we felt like there were a lot of people that were just starting to get involved with these procedures and they may not be looking for certain complications or how know how to deal with them if they would develop, which really is what we tried to answer with this manuscript specifically. Sure. Yeah, I think those are you know very valid points. You know, when I when I read your paper and I look at my own series, I, it really seems like you can break these groups of complications down into into two. Those to me that seem procedure related in terms of management of the distal wire, the catheter position within the sigmoid sinus. Uh, you know, the technical features can derive complications. And then there are certainly the intrinsic problems, changes in flow, changes in venous flow, thrombosis within the stent, uh, you know, narrowing within the stent adjacent to the torcula, things like that. So if you could delve into, I think what really interests me, I think are the technical complications. And what would you highlight from this series of patients, you know, your top five technical points that you think you have to run through to make sure that these uh, cases are done appropriately? Yeah, so in, in my view, I think the largest risk to the patient is through venous injury. And I think the time, the critical maneuvers where that risk is highest is 
probably while obtaining access with your guide catheters and the position of the wire because um, it does require a fair amount of load and force to get the system into the transverse sinus. And obviously people have different techniques for, for standing, but usually you have to get uh, a wire into the transverse sinus and sometimes into the superior sagittal sinus to allow for the stent or the, the guide construct to get rostral enough. And I think really that's the main risk. It's it's with the wire. And because of the force that you have on that system, if the wire goes into a, a small cortical vein or something, I, I really think that's the, the real risk. That can be, I think, um, mitigated by positioning the wire inferiorly as you travel across the transverse sinus to avoid the vein of the bay. If you're using a micro wire, get a J on the wire so that um, as it's pushed forward, it forms a J, which is safe to travel through the sinus. I think that's really important that people have a tendency, I think, to focus on the stent and the, the guide catheter and their eye wanders away from the wire. And I think it's really important that, that it's just become part of your practice that you keep a good eye on the wire because I really think that's the most dangerous part. Yeah. In my practice, I rely upon uh, using pre and post stenting arteriography. I find that to be very helpful. One of the uh, major complications we presented is a acute subdural hematoma, which would have been recognized had the operator actually noticed on the arteriogram that there was venous extravasation at a remote site away from the stents, which potentially could have prevented the need for a craniotomy and uh, and a herniation event, which occurred because of a, the acute subdural. And I think it's very helpful for people that are just starting to do these procedures to get images beforehand and then have a comparator afterwards to confirm that the flow through the stent is is appropriate and there's no thrombus accumulating on the, uh, the stents to confirm that there's no venous extravasation seen and to confirm that the flow is is as you would want without adjacent stenosis that's developed. Part of the issue with, with performing venous procedures is that when you inject dye, you only see where that blood is going and usually it's right back at you down the, the barrel of the catheter, which means that um, you are unlikely to see a venous injury unless it's it's a dramatic injury, unless you do an arteriogram and you look at the venous phase and you see the extravasation. So I think that is a, um, something that certainly could be debated, but uh, for people that are just starting out who might be unfamiliar or uncomfortable with the procedure, I think that's a really useful thing to do. Yeah, I think you make a convincing argument for that, Kyle. Um, I, you know, Historically in my practice, I have not done an arteriogram at the time of venous sinus stenting. I always do uh, in follow-up of these patients, I don't preferentially do a venogram, but you do make a good point. I, uh, in this case uh, that you do mention, the arteriogram actually was performed, but the extravasation wasn't noticed. And um, I think that brings up the good point that if you're going to do the arteriogram, you may not see uh, what you expect to see in terms of 
a, a hemorrhage right next to the stent. The hemorrhage may be remote from the site that you actually treated. So if you're going to do the arteriogram, I think you have to realize that you have to scrutinize it incredibly closely because you're just not going to see the big hemorrhage next to the stent. It, it, it could be something much more subtle. In your series as well, the issue of post-stenting CT scanning uh, comes up a few times. One of the authors actually converted to doing a, a relatively immediate uh, post-stenting uh, CT scan. Do you think this is necessary, Kyle? And, and then in what setting are you getting scans in your own practice? That's a great question. And obviously, this is a collection of complications from multiple authors and all of us practice differently and all of us have our own preferences based upon past experience. Um, one of our authors had a fatal hemorrhage that occurred in the cerebellum remote from stent placement. And obviously um, he feels very strongly about doing uh, CT scans two hours after the procedure and everybody to try to detect that. That is not something that is uniform among all the authors. And in fact, um, the majority of the authors do not routinely order CT scans post-procedure. And I can say that my personal experience, I do not order CT scans unless there is a very strong indication to do so. The majority of these patients will emerge from anesthesia with nausea. The majority will have stent pain, ipsilateral, to the side that's stented, usually behind the eye and behind the ear, that is relatively um, relatively painful. Most of them have headaches when they come out of anesthesia and getting a CT scan on everybody seems unnecessary. I would say if the headaches are persistent or there's a new neurologic deficit, obviously uh, potentially uh, getting a CT scan would be very important. But in my practice, almost all the patients that have headaches don't have any sort of complication. It's just a manifestation of the, the radial force, we think, from the stent pushing on the vein and the nerve endings there, and they, they feel it and it hurts. Uh, but in my view, uh, I reserve CT scans for neurologic deficit or persistent severe headache or not emerging from anesthesia as you would expect following the procedure. Sure. And certainly if there's anything untoward by the patient's emergence from anesthesia or new neurological deficit, uh, makes complete sense to get the, get the emergent CT scan. Well, I don't want to conclude today's discussion without discussing at least briefly the association between IIH and, and other thrombogenic disorders. I know there was one case in your series in which uh, the patient had a thrombophilic disorder uh, and went on to have complications as a result from that. If you could briefly go into uh, when we should screen these patients, what's the, what is the subpopulation in which we do that? And just, you know, basically some of the more common uh, thrombogenic disorders that are associated with IIH. Yeah, there's, there's some data out there suggesting that patients with IIH are more likely than the general population to have certain conditions that may predispose them to being thrombogenic, most notably antiphospholipid antibodies uh, syndrome, and then um, some other more rare conditions um, like antithrombin-3 deficiency and protein C uh, abnormalities. We did present a acute stent thrombosis 
uh, case and then also a delayed thrombosis case. And in the acute intraprocedural thrombosis case, that patient um, received a very high dose of heparin before she was therapeutic. Uh, we had administered 5,000 and then another 4,000, I think, and then another 5,000 or something like that until finally her ACT was therapeutic. And that procedure, um, ACT was not routinely checked by that operator. And so um, they didn't realize that the patient wasn't therapeutic. They had given a standard dose kind of to everybody up until that point. And I think that's uh, a really important thing. So in, in my practice now, I make sure to check ACTs on all of these patients. And I find that that's very helpful ensuring that, uh, that they're adequately thinned during the procedure to prevent that complication. As far as what to do with patients that you're just seeing in your clinic and you're deciding what to do as far as blood thinners, there is weak data suggesting that um, aspirin uh, might not be as safe as aspirin and Plavix or some other dual antiplatelet regimen uh, because there have been a number of reported cases of stent thrombosis on aspirin alone. So I think most people are putting these patients on dual antiplatelets ahead of time. As far as whether something else beyond that is necessary, I think really that depends on the patient's history. If they have no history of clotting disorders, or uh, I would think it'd be very reasonable just to perform it under dual antiplatelets and, and yeah, use heparin uh, during the procedure. If they have a history of DVT, PE, or some sort of other clotting condition, I think it makes sense to have them evaluated prior. Most of these procedures are elective, and in that situation, um, having them see hematology first to have that evaluated to make sure it's safe for the patient to have the procedure, I think is, is a good idea. Yeah, I agree. Again, uh, act when your suspicions uh, arise, right? Kyle, I just want to make sure that we get uh, kind of the hard numbers down here in terms of the results of your study. You you report among this uh, this very large series of 1.7% major complication rate um, among the patients that underwent a venous sinus stenting procedure, and then a 0.14% complication uh, rate of venography. Can you discuss just uh, briefly how these numbers uh, shake out and compare in terms of what we know from other uh, large clinical series? Well, yeah. So, so just to, to hit on that, we included over 800 venous sinus stenting cases and over 1,400 venograms, and the complication rate is uh, is quite low. The prior reports on complications, major complications from venous sinus stenting, suggest two to seven percent uh, risk. And uh, keep in mind, most of the authors that we included are fairly experienced, meaning they they uh, have performed this procedure a lot, and so that seems reasonable that our rate would be kind of on the lower end. We also have to keep in mind that um, this is retrospective data. It's not prospective. We asked authors to provide this information based upon their um, their series, and obviously, you know, retrospective data has limitations, and we tend to uh, we might miss complications here or there, and how we interpret major versus minor complication um, might be different based upon the different authors, but. I do think that the low complication rate associated with the venograms is is true. 
I can say from my personal experience, it's very uncommon for most of these patients to have complications related to that procedure. They tend to be young. They tend to be relatively quick procedures. And navigating a microcatheter into the sinus, while it can be irritating to the patient and slightly painful as you're trying to get into the sigmoid sinus from the jugular, it is very safe. And I think I think venous perforations are quite rare. And that's mainly because um, the those sinuses are enveloped with uh, you know the rigid dura and they tend not to um, there tends not to be uh, venous injuries from doing that. And so uh, I would say that while those complication rates are probably slight and underestimations just based on how we obtain the data, I do think they're probably pretty accurate. Well, I, I agree, and and obviously the complication rate uh, in your series is is low because of uh, the the incredible expertise that uh, that you guys have provided, and management of complications, as we know, is of the utmost importance uh, for the neurointerventionalists in this manuscript really does make a considerable contribution to that effort. So I thank you, Kyle, uh, for your time today. Dr. Fargin is the senior author of the manuscript entitled Major Complications of Dural Venous Sinus Stenting for Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension, Case Series and Management Considerations. It will appear in the print issue in January of 2022 and it is currently on the JNIS website. Thank you again, Kyle, for your time today and congratulations on this work. Thank you very much. Take care.